Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, All Things Dominic Dunn, where we continue to swim with the swans this week. We have made it to episode three of Feud, Capote versus the Swans. In this episode, it is so much drama. Home movies, contention with the ladies, and the black and white ball. That's what we see on screen. In today's episode, we are going to cover episode three of Feud, what you saw, and then in our Alicia's version here, we're going to break down the real behind the scenes. Our coverage of episode three of Feud is going to break into two episodes. This first one, we are covering everything but the November 1966 black and white ball. All of that coverage is coming for you a little bit later this week. What does that mean for this episode? In this episode, we're going to talk about In Cold Blood and Truman Capote's home and writing retreat in Sagaponic, as well as that 1966 Maisel's Brothers film about Truman Capote and a little bit about CZ Guest and her husband, Winston Guest's problems with the IRS, too. With no time to waste, let's investigate. Beast was nice enough to write up a recap of this particular episode. If you are watching along with the series, I am about to go through what you would have seen. After we get through this recap, the rest of the episode will reveal the behind the scene stories. But let's just begin by going through what you saw on screen. This is from the Daily Beast from Fletcher Peters. Let's break it down. When Feud, Capote vs. the Swans Episode 3 opens, we're back in 1966 when Truman Capote still had friends who loved him. Better yet, the renowned documentarian duo, the Maisels Brothers, Albert and David, are making a movie about his life, friends, and particularly a party he's about to host. As a result, most of the episode itself is shot like a black-and-white documentary, as if we're watching the unedited footage from the movie the Maisels are making. But before we can get to the glitz and the glamour of the soiree, the Maisels need to introduce viewers to Truman's inner circle. We meet Babe before everyone else. Babe is Truman's closest ally, his best friend, someone who loves him unconditionally. The pair meet for lunch at Lakote Basque in Manhattan, where Truman asks Babe, to tell the cameras why she's just enamored with him. I love you because you understand, she says about her friend, teary-eyed. You just catch on very quickly. You're like a very smart parakeet. A parakeet? That's very different from an elegant swan. Louder, brighter, higher pitched. Truman, in response, says that Babe is the absolute center of my world. They go back and forth, but the main point is Babe and Truman trust each other limitlessly. The other swans meet them for lunch. Lee and Slim enjoy the pandering cameras, but CZ says she can't be herself while being recorded all the time. Both Lee and Truman calm her down, 
The Maisels are friends of Lee's, and Truman says CZ has nothing to fear but bad lighting. Truman really knows how to get the ladies to put a sock in it, which Truman needs to do swiftly because he has an announcement. He'll be hosting a masquerade ball, the black and white ball, for this black and white dock at the Plaza Hotel with a special guest of honor. Everyone is elated, but more importantly, they want to know who holds that prized title. After Slim completes a one-on-one interview with the Maisels, the directors ask her for her guess off-camera. Slim gives a smug look. Isn't it quite obvious? It'll be her. She helped Truman with the drafts of In Cold Blood, and his social circle revolves around her. But let's remember what Truman said earlier. Babe is the absolute center. Everything about this guest of honor is quite precarious, and it's delectably gossipy to have these behind-the-scenes interviews to see what everyone's thinking about leading up to the party. Again, from the Daily Beast, Fletcher Peters, Breaking Down, Episode 3 of Feud. Next up is Babe, who is too shy for this interview. The Maisels tell her Truman is always talking about how perfect she is. Babe only giggles in response. What about Truman's house? Did she buy Truman's apartment? The Maisels had heard a rumor that she had. Babe has no comment. Okay, Babe needs to give them something. Does she want to be the guest of honor? Nope. She's happy enough with their friendship. Special recognition means nothing to her. But then, a scene later, the real Babe comes out on camera. While setting up for the party, Babe snaps at a caterer for including dishes better suited for a Labor Day barbecue. The caterer, Truman whispers to the camera, is Babe's husband Bill's latest piece of ass. Babe sobs to Truman off camera, revealing her true and secure self, and then, not a second later, we cut back to the perfect socialite we've been seeing in every other shot, licking envelopes with the invites for the masquerade. CZ is put through hell when the IRS shows up at her front door, ready with an audit. She calls Truman for help, who eases her nerves with calm words and a glass of malt whiskey. After that, CZ finally, begrudgingly, agrees to do a one-on-one interview with the Maisels. But she has some better news she's ready to drop on them. Truman has selected her to be the guest of honor to make up for this IRS fiasco although he's not to blame for any of it. That's all the Maisels get from her before a minute later, CZ has another breakdown and asks them to turn everything off. Truman then goes to see Slim, who is getting fitted for the party when she learns her arch nemesis will be in attendance. Pamela Harriman stole Slim's ex-husband, Leland Hayward, a noted Hollywood theater producer years ago, and Truman had the gall to invite her. Slim demands Truman uninvite her and shoes the cameras away while she screams at her friend through sobs. A second later, we cut to an interview with Slim, who just laughs off the Maisel's questions about their fight. That wasn't a fight, just a minor disagreement. Because of that snafu, Slim says, Truman has chosen her as the guest of honor. Wrong again. The party begins with the presentation of the real special guest, Catherine Graham the publisher of the Washington Post, 
1966. Everyone celebrates Kay, who is much more excited to see the swans than they are to see her. CZ tells the cameraman that she knew it would be Kay all along. Slim says she didn't actually want the honor, and Babe says she was never in consideration anyway. Sure, ladies. As Truman is breaking up a fight between Slim and Pamela, he receives words that party crashers have arrived. Oh, how thrilling! Truman gleefully races over to see the new masked guests. Anne Woodward and her son, Jimmy. Truman scolds Anne for showing face. Doesn't she know everyone here is whispering about the fact that she murdered her husband? Anne is furious with him for the rumor, but she still tries to make amends. She wants to be a swan again. Truman shoots back that she was never a swan. Well, she argues her actions aren't totally rude, didn't Truman's mother crash parties too? Yes, Truman says, but his mother was also a miserable woman who died by suicide. Anne makes a scene. What you're doing to us now is so low, so poisonous, she spits at Truman. One day you'll know what this poison tastes like. Foreshadowing. It becomes clear that the seeds of the swan's future revolt were planted at this party. As Truman dances, Lee stares at him with spite. We cut to her confessional interview later in the night, where the Maisels ask if she was upset not to be named guest of honor. She isn't. It's good, Lee says, to be reminded of the fact that Truman is a bad friend who is constantly vying for power, always wanting to outdo himself. Truman is always calling certain women who yearn for intimate relationships his best friend, but a person can only have one best friend. Lee is tired of Truman already, as are CZ and Slim. Babe is the only one who is still content with the friendship. Later, Truman watches the Maisel's finished footage. He demands they do not release the documentary. The material doesn't work as a film, he says. It needs to be a book. Truman is also worried about how everyone is reflected, which is why he needs to control the narrative. He then announces his next book, Answered Prayers, which he ultimately left unfinished at his death in 1984. From Truman's perspective, which is shown in color, we see one last scene from the ball. There's another party crasher, Truman's mom, Lily Mae Falk. Actually, that's not quite true. Truman says he did invite her, but she's always been one to come unannounced. She's proud of her son, and Truman reveals that she's the true guest of honor. Lily is his real best friend, and she always has been. That is a tremendous recap of the fiction you saw on screen in episode three. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to begin breaking down the real story. Back in just a moment. Let's set the action for this time, investigators, in real time. The Maisel brothers, who we probably now associate much more with Grey Gardens, Big and Little Edie Bouvier, again, related, family ties with both Lee and Jacqueline. The Maisels have been making films long before Great Gardens. They do complete a segment on Truman Capote, not with his swans, not about the ball, but for public television. This piece, filmed in 66, 
was called A Visit with Truman Capote, other title from Truman with Love. How does this actual real movie that got filmed come about? Albert Maisel will break it down for us. We got a call from public television, he says. It was the National Education Television, it was called in those days. They said that we're doing a series of films of American writers. Three writers, as a matter of fact. Nabokov, I recall, was one of them, and they had another one that they were about to make. They thought if we could come up with a, with a good idea that we should make one too. So our first thought was, well, let's do one of Norman Mailer. And certainly that would be acceptable for subject matter. But Norman, who we knew pretty well, felt that he just wasn't in a mood to do what, what he called any more advertising for himself. So we didn't press him. And then we heard that Truman Capote was about to publish a nonfiction novel called In Cold Blood. Well, that really was of great interest to us, not only because he's such a great writer, but because it was something that we wanted to do. The link to the entire 30-minute program made for public television is posted to the doneanddone.com website, along with all sources, just like every episode. It is about 30 minutes in length, with Truman Capote talking about In Cold Blood. In Cold Blood was published at the end of 1965, beginning of 1966, but the buzz was happening long before. The murderers were executed in April 1965. It was a pretty quick turnaround for Truman Capote to finish In Cold Blood to get it published by the end of 1965. Truman Capote talks about this idea of In Cold Blood being a nonfiction novel. Truman says it is the genre of the synthesis of journalism with a fictional technique. I want to give you a bit more about this hunk of time for Truman Capote before and up to that ball. These particular pieces of information are provided by Gerald Clark, Truman Capote's biographer. There is a wonderful segment in To Brief a Treat, the collected letters of Truman Capote assembled by Gerald Clark. Let's go ahead and fill this in a little bit from Gerald Clark. On the morning of Monday, November 16, 1959, Truman read a one-column story buried on page 39 of the New York Times. Wealthy farmer, three of family slain, read the headline. A wealthy wheat farmer, his wife, and their two young children were found shot to death today in their home, the story went on to say. They had been killed by shotgun blasts at close range after being bound and gagged. Going on nothing but that short newspaper story, Capote convinced the New Yorker to send him to Kansas. His intention was to write an article about the effects of the murders on the small community of Holcomb and neighboring Garden City, in which the clutters, the murdered family, had lived. Taking with him Harper Lee, his friend from earliest childhood, he set out for a part of the world that was for him as alien as the Soviet Union had been. Nor did the good folk of Garden City take to a creature, short, oddly dressed, and with a little boy's voice, who was alien to them. A kind invitation to Christmas dinner gave an opening to the Capote charm, however, and the town was soon his. 
Five days later, on December 30th, the killers, Dick Hickok and Perry Smith, were arrested. Two and a half months after that, in March 1960, they were tried, convicted, and sentenced to death. With their capture and conviction, Capote realized that he had more than an article, he had a book, and possibly a great book at that. He titled it In Cold Blood. Finishing his basic research in Kansas, he returned to Europe, where he and Dunphy rented houses on the Spanish coast for a couple of summers. For the winters, they bought a small condominium in a Swiss village. In Europe, Capote slowly and painfully wrote his book. I suppose it sounds pretentious, he told Donald Wyndham, but I feel a great obligation to write it, even though the material leaves me increasingly limp and numb and well horrified. I have such awful dreams every night. Eventually, he completed everything but his concluding chapter, which could not be written until the condemned men had exhausted the last of their many appeals. Month after anxious month, he waited for the final verdict of the final court. That came at last on April 14, 1965, with Capote watching, Hickok and Smith were hanged. The New Yorker published In Cold Blood in four installments in the fall of 1965. Random House followed with the hardcover in January 1966. And the reception was what every writer dreams of. Almost universal praise, stupendous sales, and a fame usually reserved for movie stars. In Cold Blood was the publishing event of the decade, and Capote was the man of every hour. After so much work, Capote wanted to play, and the book of the decade was followed in the autumn of 1966 with the party of the decade. On the night of November 28th, a rainy Monday, the rich and famous, as well as many lesser mortals whom he liked, walked into Manhattan's Plaza Hotel for a masked black-and-white ball. As the Washington Post wrote, the Capote name, coupled with the guest list that reads like the who's who of the world, has escalated his party to a social happening of history-making proportions. The little boy from Alabama had come, he had seen, and he had conquered. With the exception of Robert Linscott, who had retired from Random House, Capote's correspondence during this period remain very much the same, with two significant additions, Alvin Dewey, the detective in charge of the Clutter case, and his wife Marie. Many of his letters to the Deweys include requests for information. His debt to them is obvious, but it soon becomes clear that the friendship is more than convenient. Indeed, he all but adopts them, and they him. Precious ones is how he addresses them in one letter, dearest honey-funny bunnies in another. Catherine Graham, the publisher of the Washington Post and the guest of honor of his black and white ball, also makes an appearance as Precious KK. So briefly does Perry Smith, who had asked him for the words of a poem he remembered. Capote found it. It was written by Robert W. Service, a once popular Canadian poet, and he may have noticed that the words applied equally well to both of them. 
There's a race of men that don't fit in, a race that can't stay still. So they break the hearts of kith and kin, and they roam the world at will. In Cold Blood was the thing in 1966. Of course, the Maisel brothers getting in on public television. There's an interviewer as well. They are going to head out to Truman Capote's studio in Sagaponic to do the filming of this particular documentary. Let's set up a bit about Truman Capote's seaside workspace. This is his retreat for decades. And its history, Truman's home's history in Sagaponic, really is fascinating. Truman commissions this home. It's a two-story flat-roofed salt box house, really near Gibson Beach in Sagaponic. The home is commissioned in 1961. This is in the Hamptons, but not exactly the ritzy Hamptons one thinks of today. This is much more rustic. Truman Capote's seaside home and writing retreat was located at 683 Daniels Lane. Truman has six acres. It's very secluded, very private. These acres also include a bird sanctuary, a long gravel driveway, and endless vistas of scrub pine, wildflowers, and potato fields. The home comes in at about 5,000 square feet. Again, pretty modest salt box house, four bedrooms, four bathrooms, two fireplaces, a pool, and a guest house too, of course. There are floor-to-ceiling windows on the first floor. There's a screened-in porch as well. Truman says about the place, it's like Kansas with a sea breeze. This is where the interview takes place that the Maisels do. There's a minute, like a minute of footage that takes place in New York City, but nary a swan to be found in it. At Truman's home in Sagaponic, there is a dirt road. I mean, it's sleepy, sleepy beachside. The ocean's about 200 yards away from Truman's home. He builds it in 61. The home, about 15 years later in 1976, was featured in Architectural Digest. It is super interesting to see the home through time. The Truman Capote Maisel's Brothers movie gives us a black and white glimpse of his Sagaponic home in 1966. That 1976 piece from Architectural Digest, a little bit more colorful. When you came into Truman's house, you had to take off your shoes. The floor is coated with a polished blue boat deck paint. Truman, when he is in residence at his Sagaponic house, wakes up at 7 a.m. He'll write for about four hours, read the papers maybe if he's a little distracted. He will stop for lunch at 1 p.m. and then run into town for errands or to walk the dog. Dinner is served at 7 p.m., and if there are no parties that night, which sometimes does happen, Truman Capote is hitting the hay by 9.30 with a book in his hand. The home is really interesting, seeing this visual of it in real time from the Maisels. Truman Capote decorates the home himself, saying, For me, it's a bore to use a decorator. I just don't care to have someone come in and tell me what I need to live with. I know. If Truman Capote gets bored, he can always just hop over to Gloria Vanderbilt's pool. She's right over in Southampton. 
Truman Capote was always invited to Gloria's pool, whether Gloria was there or not. Truman will move into his writing retreat. It becomes a really special place of his. He'll move in right after the film version of Breakfast at Tiffany's is released. Of course, not only is Gloria Vanderbilt close, but also Truman's dear princess, Lee Radzewell. Truman will build his lover, Jack Dunphy, his own cottage off the main house about 75 yards away. This place serves as Truman's writing space, one of his main ones for about three decades. He moves in in the early 60s. In 1980, Jack Dunphy will find Truman collapsed on the steps of this home with broken glass all around him. Jack rushes Truman to Southampton Hospital, where Truman tells Jack, I drink because it's the only time I can stand it. Truman passes away three summers later. After Truman's passing, Jack Dunphy is given Truman's Sagaponic home. When Jack Dunphy passes away in 1992, he will give the home to the Nature Conservancy who the following year in 1993 will sell the whole place lock, stock, and barrel to American artist Ross Bleckner for the sweet, sweet price of $800,000. Ross Bleckner will complete many revisions, renovations, and changes to the home. Bleckner lives there for many years, selling Truman Sagaponic Place with quite a tidy profit in 2014, for right under $14 million. This is the home that we see in the Maisel's movie. Again, very limited time in New York City and nary a swan. What else happens in the film? It's mostly about writing. It's about In Cold Blood. And for that New York City piece, we do flash to Truman's Honey Bunny friends, the Deweys, Alvin and Marie. Again, the police chief and his wife, they are coming to New York City for their first big trip. They want to see all the tourist things. This is filmed. They go to the ice skating rink in the publishing house and take a visit to Tiffany's. Something fun does happen in this. They're talking to Truman and the Deweys ask Truman, did Tiffany send you a present? And Truman says, you know, I got a phone call from one of the directors of Tiffany's. They decided they were going to send me an entire breakfast set, and I said, that's fine as long as it's in solid silver, preferably gold, for my new apartment. Again, Truman does move in with his in-cold-blood money to the UN Plaza on the 22nd floor at about this same time. The Deweys again want to see the Statue of Liberty. Truman's able to point it out his window Then we see the Deweys on the boat taking the tour. Truman and the rest of this documentary, it's more writing. It's an exploration of letters from Dick and Perry, the murderers. Then they go walk on the beach. That's it. That's the Maisels. There is nary a swan to be seen in the footage for public television of any swan. That is what I'm trying to communicate. That is the story of the real Maisel's Brothers movie about Truman Capote. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to wrap this episode down with a little bit about CZ and Winston and the IRS. 
Back in just a minute, friends. All right, one last segment to get to in this episode. CZ Guest is shown in this episode having a little trouble with the IRS. Technically, it's CZ's husband, Winston Guest, who is having the trouble. We did cover CZ and her story back in episode 105. But as Truman Capote's most steadfast friend, CZ Guest is always worth a mention in my book. Truman says about CZ, her hair parted in the middle and paler than Dom Perignon was but a shade darker than the dress she was wearing, a Mainbacher column of white crepe de chine, no jewelry, not much makeup, just blanc de blanc perfection. Who would have imagined that lurking inside this cool vanilla lady was a madcap laughing tomboy? Truman does describe CZ as a cool vanilla lady. Our cool vanilla lady was painted by Diego Rivera and Salvador Dali as well. She's a legendary entertainer with guests and BFFs like Diana Vreeland, Babe Paley, Barbara Hutton, Oscar de la Renta, Joan Rivers, Cecil Beaton, the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, and Salvador Dali too. CZ always dressed in Mainbacher or Givenchy. She will make her way to the best-dressed Hall of Fame list in 1959. And CZ is remembered for her good looks and her fashion sense, but really very much remembered for her spirit. Diane von Furstenberg has a wonderful quote about CZ. This is what Diane Furstenberg remembers. What made her even more special was her generosity of heart her kindness, and her simplicity. Nothing about her was fake or phony. She was real class, real woman, real mother, real friend, real beauty. There will only be one CZ guest, the real classy American beauty. That she was. Did her husband Winston get into some financial trouble? You betcha. I did find this little slice from a piece from Time Magazine. This is from December 8, 1967, which gives a little bit of a rundown on it all. It's surprising how much isn't out there about this, but I was able to find this. This is a little piece called The Rich Caught Short, again from Time Magazine, December 1967. To keep the good life rolling in high gear, an annual income of $600,000 from trust funds totaling $30 million should be just the ticket. That sum is what Palm Beach, Long Island socialite Winston Frederick Churchill Guest, 61, can count on. And it has gone a long way toward making him appear to be the man who has everything. Family? Hard to top a steel-rich Phipps mother and a British father who is a polo-playing first cousin to Winston Churchill. Wife? None other than patrician blonde C.Z., the former Lucy Cochran of Boston. Time cover, July 20th, 1962, who at 47 is one of the world's most elegant women. Hobbies? What's wrong with the guest's Templeton stables, whose thoroughbreds carry his and C.Z.'s colors at tracks throughout the United States and Europe? While the rich are always notoriously short of ready cash, the guests of late have set some kind of record. To keep up with an avalanche of bills, the stables alone can cost $200,000 a year, 
1959, he sold his mother's Palm Beach house, Villa Artemis, for $350,000, moved in over the garage across the street. Next, in 1963, he sold their Manhattan apartment, took to commuting from his 111-acre Long Island estate. Meanwhile, his plunges into Latin American airlines had become a cropper. He lost one airline when the Mexican government nationalized it. Even worse was his flyer with Aereo Vias Panama, a scheduled passenger and freight airline that went bankrupt two years ago, leaving him sole guarantor for bills totaling $499,765.43 owed to a Miami airplane leasing company. What made Guest's predicament all the more painful was that to keep current, he had already taken out $265,000 in bank loans plus another $105,000 against his life insurance and put up for sale several paintings including Moro's Mary Tudor. Once a federal court ruled last March that Guest alone was responsible for Ariovius's bad debts, it was only a question of time before a federal marshal showed up at the Guest's Long Island estate. In August, he started tagging their paintings and objects of art. Winston Guest went to court to stave off the indignity of a marshal sale, got a month's grace, during which he scraped together the money to cover the half-million-dollar debt plus $20,000 in interest and legal fees. Last week, it was finally time to pay the piper. Up for auction at Manhattan's Park Burnett Galleries went 151 items of guest choices Chinese and Meissen porcelain and signed French 18th century furniture. In three hours of furious bidding, collectors in what was a resounding tribute to guests' connoisseur taste bid a handsome $815,275. It was enough to see the guests safely out of the woods for the moment. But in the tradition of the rich, they could not have appeared to care less. Even before the sale began, Winston had taken off for the weekend to shoot quail in the Carolinas. CZ Guest, God bless her, does go to work for the New York Post in the early 1980s once her husband Winston passes away in 1982. Once that happens, CZ really does enjoy her third act. She opens up her life. Our man Dominic Dunn was super into CZ Guest and Cornelia Guest all the way back in his reporting from Palm Beach in the mid-1980s. See episodes 87 through 98 for all those stories in the Palm Beach Chronicles. It really all does come together. Everything connects in our Dominic Dunn universe. I think that is everything in this episode that is not the black and white ball. That episode is coming for you in a double drop this week. The black and white ball really is significant. It does stand alone. Stay tuned for that drop. It'll come out earlier and ad free on Patreon, of course. With all the spiderwebs, the before, the during, and the after from all the people who lived it. 
Thank you one and all for tuning in today, for spending your time with me, and all the ways you support Done and Done, telling your friends and fellow podcast enthusiasts, most especially, for your kind reviews, for your awesome emails, for your support over at Patreon as well. You're simply the best, the lot of you. Thank you, thank you, thank you again. Stay tuned for the Black and White Ball coming for you later this week. And until we meet again, stay curious and keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at doneanddonepodcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.